There's one big party going on all the time. Sometimes we get to tune into it. The rest of the time, there's love as the message. Hello and welcome to Love is the Message, a podcast about dance, music, counterculture, parties and politics. I'm Jeremy Gilbert and I'm here as usual with my friend Tim Lawrence. Hello. And today we are going to be talking about a topic we're calling Feminist Soul. And this is really because we finished up the last programme about funk, thinking about the relationship between women's liberation and funk. And it seems like there's a really, to us, there's a really important set of developments from around sort of 69, maybe even a bit earlier, into the early 70s, whereby uh, sort of soul funk music, music at the sort of interface between soul funk and jazz, maybe we'd call it soul jazz in some registers, is becomes a, a, a kind of cultural zone in which women are doing really important work and they're doing it with a moral, in some cases, an explicitly feminist agenda, in some cases, a sort of implicitly feminist agenda. And there's clearly a kind of relationship between women's liberation and the, the rise of a new feminist consciousness or an accentuated and more widespread feminist consciousness and things that are going on in music that we think are really inspiring and important. But we're also going to talk a bit about things sort of immediately prior to that moment. I mean, the, the like we always say, the official histories of women's liberation usually date it to 1969, it's the year of the first Women's Liberation Conference in the, in the States, I think, and something similar happened in the UK. I think it was a year later, I think. So we could, but we're also going to look a little bit at the sort of background. So... Tim, what's the first piece of music we're going to listen to in thinking about this background? Well, I think the first piece of music we're going to listen to is, is has to be by uh, Aretha Franklin. She, in the late 60s and early 70s, was um, widely referred to uh, and hailed as the Queen of Soul. Um, she was the most influential black female vocalist of the late 1960s and early 1970s. And um, of course, we've already spoken, I think, in an early, I'm pretty sure, in an earlier uh, pro, uh, po- uh, program about respect, which um, she, you know, she took and turned into, you know, this rousing um, anthem that captured elements not only of the, of the civil rights movement, but the, the feminist movement. So um, if we want to get straight into the music, the, the record that we want to hear from Aretha is You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. So I think one of the things that this this record kind of raises is the is is um, what uh, Aretha's kind of engagement with what we might call feminism was. There is this widespread assumption that she she was a feminist um, 
when she passed away, the Washington Post kind of published, you know, and, and many other kind of media media outlets published kind of these these testaments that were that saluted her her role within the struggles for black women and and, and said that she was deeply political that she combined feminism with black pride but um, I think we both had the feeling and, and when we were doing a bit of prep for this meeting uh, this this came through that you know it wasn't that easy to think of that many Aretha songs that we could kind of straightforwardly refer to as kind of feminist soul anthems feel like a natural woman um, seems to kind of suggest the kind of opposite uh, it plays into tropes of femininity and that that woman only really feeling like a, a real woman in relationship to a man uh, rather than, than for example um, degenerating her own kind of self-understanding either by herself or in kind of in kind of an alliance with with other female friends um, I mean, we're trying to think a little bit about why what why this might have uh, happened. I think, in part, um, she just wasn't uh, overtly political. Um, she was a huge admirer of, of Martin Luther King, um, but um, she didn't have a particularly uh, she didn't have a, a strong relationship at all with the Black Power movement. Uh, she didn't really identify with its radicalism, um, and from the early seventies onwards, she became really kind of uh, Perhaps even you know more immersed in in gospel in some respects than soul, and gospel and also soul clearly play this kind of import, very important role within the African American community in terms of finding uh, you know ideas of of solidarity, of uh, ways of negotiating hardship, uh, of expressing forms of joy. You know these are all kind of extremely have an extremely important role in 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 terms of social organization and expression uh, she offered uh, to post bail for angela davis who was uh, then a communist party uh, member of the communist party in 1970 um, so there were some elements where she kind of got a little bit more involved in politics but overall i think there was something about uh, aretha which kind of shied away from kind of an overt politics and you know her one of the most important um releases of this period uh, was the, was the live recording of amazing grace there was this fantastic documentary came out uh, of the, of the same name that kind of used and and made you know made good this original footage of of that recording uh, which was recorded on on the west coast and it's a it's a it's a really powerful kind of really powerful concert but it's really Aretha singing as a kind of uh, within a kind of a religious communal context with this extraordinary presence and this extraordinary voice just by being dent of who she was she kind of comes across as a powerful woman but she doesn't particularly capture anything about a way that this may kind of give rise to a form of, of an idea of change I would say for black women black women uh, more widely there's a sort of ambivalence, I think, you know, uh, lying at the heart of some of, of Aretha's music within regards to her feminism. I think it's kind of assumed to be there, but when, when, when one looks at the releases, it's not, not always quite so clear-cut. Yeah, I think that's all completely accurate. I think we wanted to play, you may, yeah, you want, we wanted to play Natural Woman because it is, it's one of these records that's sort of, um, sort of irresistible, like it's sort of it's a very popular record it's kind of hot it's so powerful kind of emotionally it's so kind of affecting and yet it does seem to be expressing a sentiment which is 
you know, not not a feminist sentiment. I mean, I'm going to complicate that in a moment. I'm going to say, if you want to, you can you can open it up to a reading, which is which is a bit more ambiguous. And it's also it's important to say, look, but it's not it's not like we're condemning it for that. It's not like you know, it's not the job of music yeah, to kind of yeah, do yeah. the work of politics. Like we're interested in exploring the relationships between music and politics, but the one can never be expected to substitute for the other. And feminism is a contentious term. You know, I always say to our students. There are many different kinds of feminism, many different schools, many different projects. Uh, there are three basic statements, which I think you have to you know, agree with or disagree with to determine whether you are or are not a feminist. And it is simply, the statements are, one, women have been systematically disadvantaged in most human societies that we know about. Uh, statement two, that is a bad thing. Statement three, we should therefore do something about it. Uh, I don't think Marita Franklin personally would have disagreed with, with any of those statements. Then the question of well, what you do about all that is open to all kinds of interpretation. But at the level of kind of theory and philosophy, I mean, the most the great text of feminist theory of the 20th century is Simone de Beauvoir's book, you know, first published in the, uh, is it the late 40s or the early 50s? I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was even, even the mid to late 50s, 57. Maybe I'm wrong, maybe it was earlier. 49. Oh, right. Yeah. Second Sex, first first published in French in 1949. Oh, right. yeah. And famously, Simone de Beauvoir, the most famous line in The Second Sex is, you know, uh, it's one is not born but is made a woman. So, and it's the idea that, you know, women, femininity is socially constructed in some way. It's, it's an effect of social conventions. It's not something which is simply organic or, or biological. So, the, the there's a certainly... Anyone whose way of looking at the world is sort of defined by feminist commitments is sort of trained to be very suspicious of a phrase like natural woman. On the other hand, you know, you, you make me feel like a natural woman doesn't necessarily imply that there is such a thing as a natural woman. You know, it might, it might be an exploration of indeed the, the ways in which one can only feel like one might be one or the what it might be to be one in a kind of relational situation. In a well, there's, sort of social... there's also strands of radical feminism which celebrate the idea of the specificity of, of, of being a woman yeah. uh, and, and, yeah. and, and believe that to be kind of more advanced, superior, more progressive, I maybe should say, than, than being a man or being masculine. So, yeah, exactly. That as well. Yeah. I mean, at some point, I've got a, I've got loads of material on this that I've developed for our students over the years, actually, on d difference feminism and liberal feminism as as a radical feminism as approaches to music and musicology. So I guess at some point I'll just record a load of stuff about that. And you can also say, of course, it's important to say, you know, Natural Woman is 67. In 1967, there isn't anything you can point to, really, and say, here's an organised women's movement. It's not that there isn't feminism as a kind of general set of principles to it, which have lots of adherence. I think this is something which conventional histories of feminism in the 20th century often ignore. You know, there were definitely active feminists, like in American politics in the early 60s. That's why the Civil Rights Act had uh, discrimination, had you know, gender and sexual discrimination written into it. But there isn't like a big movement out there 
which you can really, which you can sort of expect an artist to have some sort of relationship to or not. And it's also the case that a lot of the music of the 60s, you know, by women or men, is just exploring the lives people are actually living. And the, the lives women are actually living, for the most part, in the 60s, are utterly defined by gender difference and enforced gender codes. You know, that that's why when Betty Friedan published her landmark book, The Feminine Mystique, it became such a huge bestseller and such a huge event. But... I mean, the whole one of the whole things we keep on referring to is how, in particular, in the second half of the nineteen sixties, these established uh, social norms were being challenged uh, within within these communities. So, uh, yeah, well, I think and and, and, the, and the sense of the sentiments that you know, even if there wasn't a kind of developed feminist movement uh, in this particular moment, there had been you know, feminist thought had been circulating you know since you know well. It's hard to put a precise date on it, but certainly since the beginning of the 20th century, uh, battles for suffrage and, and yeah, the, uh, yeah, the role of yeah. women in the Second World War was obviously significant. Women were sort of taking over the workplace to cover for uh, men who were at the battlefront. So there had been, you know, and there was a great, there was this great um, significant reaction on the part of women when after in the post-war era and the men returned from the from the from the uh, fighting fighting in Europe, uh, that women were expected to return to their previous roles in the domestic sphere, and there was resistance to this. So, Yeah, yeah. Well, they weren't just expected to. There was a major project to sort of persuade them yeah. to. So the, the whole kind of ideology of the housewife, exactly. like even in the 50s, is being aggressively promoted in order to basically in, encourage this, like mu- much more so than, in, say, in the 20s and 30s, you know. Especially in the States, in the 30s, there's a big expansion of women going to university i always like telling the story of my grand you know my grandmother was you know it, it she went to university in the would have been in the early 30s i think and then she went she worked for the new deal administration in the states she drove a red cross ambulance around normandy during the war and then the way she would tell the story is like she came back home from the war and was told that's it now you're a housewife for the rest of your life and she hated it i mean the and the very clear dissatisfaction women had with with that kind of with their lot I think it really informs some of the most powerful sort of art of the in the English speaking world in the kind of of the late fifties, early sixties. I think of you know, you think of novels like Doris Lessing's The Golden Notebook, you think of a film like A Taste of Honey. It's really um powerful. But it's uh, it's relatively hard to find any very clear traces of it in music. So in the early sixties, when we're thinking about kind of women's mu- you know, music made by women, probably the most striking development is I would say the development of the girl groups coming out of coming out of sort of soul, sort of early Motown. The groups kind of modelled on groups like the Supremes, and that music's been heard by some critics as kind of expressing a kind of feminine potency, a kind of feminine collectivity in the way that you know these are girl sort of girl gangs becoming groups. And some of the songs, I think we might have mentioned this before, and I can't remember now. I mean, there are some songs from that moment which do have these quite striking sort of proto-feminist themes. My favourite is I Can Never Go Home Anymore by the Shangri-Las. It's New Jersey, kind of white girl group, which is basically a song telling girls not to let a boy come between them and their mothers. But then there's also just incredibly like reactionary stuff. There's a song, I only kind of became aware of this really recently. There's a song by a group called The Crystals from 1962, literally called He He Hit Me and It Felt Like a Kiss. And like, if you don't believe me, go Google the lyrics. 
it's a woman saying, it's okay, this guy hit me, it shows that he loved me. If he didn't love me, he wouldn't get jealous and angry. So that's why he, I'm glad he hit me. It's kind of absolutely shocking. So there's this, there's clearly a real sort of ambivalence in the 60s and in that kind of 60s music. And a lot of it seems to be just expressing and almost kind of celebrating female subjugation, frankly. I mean, it's, you know, in a lot of, as kind of musically beautiful as a lot of the music of people like Martha and the Vandellas or the Supremes is, like if you want to get into the lyrics, which isn't always necessary, but if you do, they're very much about women having this kind of passive, almost kind of pleading situation in relation to men. And the best thing they can expect from life is is to have a husband who will treat them half decently. And, you know, I think there's, you know, I think, um, I mean, coming back to Aretha briefly, I mean, I do think it's important to emphasize that she was, she was a, she was a charismatic, forceful, incredibly talented kind of, you know, artist, uh, you know, on, in some ways, maybe she sort of anticipates Michael Jackson. I don't know. I mean, we could pull out, a whole, yeah, yeah, we could pull out a whole name, a whole, you know, a bunch of names, you know, the, of black musicians, artists who go on to become superstars who just, ca- you know, carry, carry a certain spirit with them just by, just through their being, uh, not necessarily through their lyrics. But, um, we are, we are doing a podcast on, on counterculture and politics and music. And I think the thing about Aretha is that she, with, the, with the recording of, of Respect, the kind of remake of this uh, already a noticed Reading classic, there was this expectation that she was going to kind of embody this kind of, you know, this important uh, intersection between feminism and civil rights. Um, but, and so kind of looking to, I was, you know, I spent a bit of time also, uh, uh, looking for, looking at some of these lyrics and uh, thought, well, what other records are, are there that Aretha recorded that sort of support this? And there's this, there is a record called "I Never Loved a Man." So I thought, aha, you know, this is this has to be, you know, this is it. This is, uh, you know, this is where kind of Aretha is getting a bit more into kind of about female solidarity or who knows what or critical of male behaviour. And it, you know, and the lyrics, and again, it's not always about the lyrics, of course. Uh, I, I I get that. But, um, you know, this man who she refers to is a heartbreaker. He's a liar. Uh, he's a cheat. But then it's, I don't know why you let, let, I don't know why I let you do these things to me. My friends keep telling me that you ain't no good, but they don't know that, um, oh, but they don't know that I'd leave you if I could, but I can't. Uh, and she can't, uh, because she's never loved a man. This is the title. She's never loved a man the way I love you. Um, so it's exactly that it's the kind of, you know, it's, it's not that different from the kind of this, this, this line that you just quoted about accepting some kind of, you know, abuse. You know, it's a liar. He's a cheat. He's a heartbreaker. Uh, but she, you know, still loves him. Um, and it's a little, it just seems to be quite a long way away from the, some of the records that we're going to talk about in, in the rest of the show. So. Well, I think we want, I want to just reiterate in case anyone's missing the point. I mean, we do love Aretha. I mean, I think greatest vocalist of the 20th century for me, mm. hands down. And just a really extraordinarily important figure. And, and also it's not a criticism. You know, she sang about experience that was relevant to her. Um, it's like, it's, it's an interesting to observe that despite what some people might have expected to happen, especially like going into the 70s, she didn't really align herself very explicitly in her music with women's liberation. But I don't think there was no, you know, that's no criticism. It's just something that happened. Sure. 
But yeah, indeed, as you say, we want to talk about some people who in their music and to some extent, in some cases, their kind of explicit politics were much more clearly aligned with it. So Nina Simone Revolution, why don't you introduce that amazing record and artist? Well, Nina Simone, Nina Simone, just for me is just, you know, I often say this, you know, there'll be a handful of people listening who've heard me say it before, maybe more than once, but... I just think it just shows how kind of messed up our conventional historiographies of the music of this period are. That, you know, it it isn't just a kind of truism that Nina Simone is as important a figure as like Lennon and McCartney or Mick Jagger. You know, because the music she produces at the same time is just as important, I think just as influential and, and also just better for the most part. <laughs> it's a re- absolutely extraordinary figure. Yeah, so by this time, she's already, she's in her 30s. She's born in 1933. So she's in her late 30s by 1969. So she would belong to a generation kind of really in between the sort of uh, people who are kind of in their 20s or even their late teens in the 60s and 70s, and the generation of the kind of mid-20th century generation of people that would include, in terms of, say, you know, black music and black politics, people like Paul Robeson. But because she's, I think partly because she's a bit older than the kind of 60s generation, as we usually think of it, you know, she is quite directly influenced by not, not just civil rights or the emerging black power, but the much longer tradition of mm-hmm. black radicalism and, you know, that she's therefore more kind of conscious of the extent to which if you go back a couple of decades there's a very close affinity between you know organizations like the communist party of the usa and other kind of far-left organizations and the struggles for black rights and black freedom but she's also queer at least on some reports and she had very very explicit politics very clear politics she's really a just kind of jazz singer she's coming out of jazz and i think one of the that's a really important current is feeding some of the most interesting of this of this what we're calling feminist soul of the early 70s and this track is from 1969 it's first recorded it's absolutely the moment of women's liberation and the song is called revolution and it is it's an explicit i mean it's referred to in the literature as a reply song it's a reply to the beatles track from the white album yeah the notorious track revolution so i'm sure listeners will know but it's worth kind of spelling out so revolution is this track on the white album and the beatles the beatles who have been kind of iconic figures of the summer of love in 1967 are obviously made quite uncomfortable by the increasing political militancy this that we're seeing on the streets in 1968 and they see they sing this song that says oh you say you want a revolution and, it, and the lyrics seem to express a degree of scepticism about kind of any form of political militancy. And um, notoriously, John Lennon, I think by the time the record was released, John Lennon, like Mick Jagger as well, had become caught up himself in the kind of mood of growing militancy in, in London amongst kind of young people and had become kind of embarrassed by the song. So... There's at least one famous instance. There's some recorded, there's some footage of the Beatles playing it. I don't know what the context was because they'd have finished, they'd stopped doing like normal live touring years before, but they're playing the song in 69 or 70, I think. And the, the, the lyric, the lyric goes, if you know, you can count me out and uh, John shouts in instead of out. 
The story, the story I was, I don't know if this is true. I was told in 1968, Mick Jagger applied to join the International Marxist Group and so did John Lennon. But John Lennon was considered too bourgeois and was refused. He was, Mick Jagger was given membership of the International Marxist Group. I don't know if that's true. But anyway, the Beatles had done this song basically, you know, from the position of kind of Wilsonite, you know, moderate social democracy that I would I would associate with them for the most part, sort of distancing themselves from the revolutionary politics of the streets. And, and here's Nina Simone. Here is Nina Simone saying, well, you know, fuck you, basically. You know, we are going to need a revolution. And she said, and she also said, I mean, the, the lyrics are fantastic. You know, we're going to have to talk dis- about destruction um, of all the, I'm forgetting the lyrics now. Oh, uh, destruction of all the evil that will have to end. I'm remembering it before I look it up. Yeah, because singing about a revolution, because we're talking about a change, is more than just evolution. Well, you know, you got to clean your brain. I mean, honestly, it's the mo- It's a more explicit and rigorous political statement than anything coming out of California at the time. Anything coming out of the kind of mainstream of the counterculture. It's also uh, my favourite version is the live version from a concert in Paris. Uh, it's called A Very Rare Evening. Yeah, and that's from 1969 as well. That's my favourite recording. It's just, you know, to kill a dance tune. I've played this a couple of times at parties. Always, always tears it up. So it's really just a sort of ex- extraordinary piece of music. So for me, and Nina Simone, she really, and Nina Simone, of course, had already, she had already been the person who's who had popularised uh, the great civil rights an- anthem I wish I um, knew how it would feel to be free. She she hadn't written it, but she'd popularised it. And it was her performance, which is, you know, considered definitive. So really, really important figure. And absolutely um, a kind of iconic figure of kind of emergent black feminism, I think. Constitution, Of all the evil that will happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things uh, that sometimes happens with Nina Simone is that she's kind of she's. Um, subsumed into the general tenor of kind of of the civil rights movement and she did this incredible recording uh, which was a live recording three days after Martin Luther King was assassinated uh, which I think is, is titled Why the, the King of Love is Dead and it's a beautiful recording um, but you're right I think um, you know what's really one of the things that really marks her out is, is, her, is her consistent radicalism uh, Stokely Carmichael, I think, called her the true singer of the of the civil rights movement, um, and she was radical. Um, and she had been from you know you know from an early pretty early point. Uh, there's that what, one of her kind of most famous recordings is Mississippi Goddamn, uh, and that was a response to the 1963 murder of I think it was uh, four four young black girls, and uh, another was kind of was injured. Um, and Nina Simone said, you know, of that song, that it was like throwing 10 bullets, bullets back at them. She was prepared to engage in this incredibly confrontational rhetoric. She did, as you, the lyrics you were just reading out, she didn't sort of 
necessarily believe in sort of gradual peaceful change she thought it had to be fast and it, and it, and it, it may well need to involve sorts of forms of violence um i also because we were because we were um talking about james brown and say it loud i'm black and i'm proud uh in the last episode uh kind of reminded me uh, with nina simone of this of this you know important track that she also recorded to be one of many um which is titled to be young gifted and black uh, which interestingly was uh, Aretha went on to cover in a sort of more of a kind of overt kind of gospel kind of recording. And the To Be Young, Gifted and Black um, was, I think, um, well, um, was recorded for, um, it, was, it was inspired by a, a playwright, her playwright friend, uh, Lorraine Hansbury, who she had, you know, she was very close with, and they had lots of ongoing conversations. This, the play was titled um, "Young, Gifted, and Black," or "To Be Young, Gifted, and Black." I forget which it is, um, um, and it was an autobiographical play. Um, and I think I'm not sure if Hansbury died before. I know the play was unfinished, so I'm not entirely sure if Hansbury died before she got to finish it, or if it was unfinished for another reason. Um, but the title of this record was a tribute to that friend um, who died. I mean, I know Hansbury died really young at the age of 34. And it was just kind of interesting what this, I think this is, what this starts to evoke for or capture is, is this kind of politics of friendship and, and solidarity, um, you know, between in particular black women and who, who are inspiring each, uh, inspiring each other. It's a conversation that's taking place outside of kind of, you know, the male gaze. Uh, it's not about, you know, something that's happening in conjunction with, with white people. Um, it's kind of, it's, it's intimate and it's energizing uh, and it feeds into set a sense of empowerment and solidarity. She went to Juilliard. She, she went for Juilliard for like one term, I think, didn't she? I don't know. That's where I think she was. I don't know if she dropped out, uh, but she was enrolled in Juilliard. And uh, that's where, you know, one of the places where she was developing her classical piano. And then applied for this scholarship college in in Philadelphia, um, and was didn't and she was refused admission. Anyway, just to just to say that um, Nina Simone, you know, she was you know indeed faced these kind of intersecting, um, intersectional challenges of you know a race of of not only of of racism as well as sexism, um, and it was it was a re, you know she attributed her refusal. Or to get into this school, the, the, the unsuccessful application to racism. She also found a way to kind of, you know, not only be this extraordinary musicianship musician, but also to kind of express these incredibly fierce, uh, forthright, and powerful and poetic sentiments within her, within this music at the same time. Okay, so we agree. Yeah, we, we agree. Don't, we we agree. Don't, we don't tend to disagree about music, do we? We love Nina Simone absolutely. Just fantastic iconic figure and it's just an amazing track without music life would be a mistake hello this is matt i produce the show we're making this podcast because we believe that alternative history and radical ideas should be given as much airtime as possible yet it's increasingly difficult for knowledge of this kind to circulate through the mainstream media or university sector we love doing it and we're committed to making sure it's available for free to anyone who wants it But at the end of the day, for myself, Jeremy and Tim, this is what we do for our jobs. This kind of work isn't just a hobby, and we've each permanently lost a significant chunk of our regular income due to the pandemic. We won't be able to carry on doing this without some financial support. So if you have the means and you like what we're doing, please consider supporting us via our Patreon. 
You can find the link in the show notes. Thanks. So, as we said, this is the moment, not by accident, this is the moment of the sort of women's liberation movement. And I think it's probably a point we'll come back to a few times, but I think um, a lot of listeners will probably have, at some point in their education, have received a fairly sort of conventional history of feminism in the 20th century. And that, and that conventional history says there was this thing called feminism and there were two main waves of feminism. And the first wave of feminism lasted from sort of the late 19th century through to the end of the 20s. And its main political focus was winning votes for women in countries that had liberal democratic electoral systems and was to some extent also about promoting ideas like, like more equality in marriage. There's this idea, especially in American literary studies, there's this big up, this idea of the new woman in, in the 1890s, the kind of uh, late Victorian, Edwardian, educated women aspiring to you know, be more than just sort of housewives. And then there's the second wave of feminism, and that begins in 1969 with women's liberation. It's kind of presaged by the publication of Betty Friedan's book, um, The Feminine Mystique. And... Again, it has a fairly defined set of political objectives around sort of, you know, women's really getting women equal pay, equal access to the labour market, equal access to ed- education to men. And I think that is a that is a narrative uh, which was largely consolidated in the 80s on sort of certain kind of university curriculum in the 80s. Um, it's quite a problematic narrative. And I think it's of limited use, partly because it plays down the extent to which there were real continuities in terms of ongoing feminist politics over the in the middle decades of the 20th century. As I've already mentioned, the best evidence for that is the fact that this, the 65 Civil Rights Act included protection of uh, against discrimination um, on the grounds of gender and sexuality and people, not sexuality, but gender. And, so, and it began to you know, people began to bring cases to the Supreme Court, you know, against on, on the basis of that very quickly after it was passed. So that's problematic. And I think that what, and also, to be honest, just the whole concept of second wave feminism, to me, is a way of sort of domesticating, toning and playing down and kind of retrospectively distorting what was going on from sort of 69 into the 70s, which was something specific, but it was not something that the people involved in it would have called second wave feminism. You know, women were not going around saying, you see me, I'm a second wave feminist. What they would said that what they would have described themselves as being part of was the movement for women's liberation. And I think it's really important to sort of have a sense of that. The women's liberation is a specific movement. It's, uh, you know, and um, it has a very kind of broad, very kind of a kind of emancipatory agenda. It wants to liberate women from male oppression, but also it wants to, to some extent, liberate men from male oppression and from militarism and from masculinism. And it wants to, it has a very utopian objective. And I think it's really important. And part of the sort of mythology that gets constructed, again, really on this kind of university curriculum in the 80s, is this idea that. Well, women's liberation or second wave feminism, whatever you're calling it, is just is completely dominated by these middle class white women, which is why in the 1980s you had to invent black feminism. 
And this is all just, again, this is just nonsense. It's just historical nonsense. It's not to say that there wasn't a need for particular kinds of explicitly black feminist work in the 80s or before that and subsequently. I'm not saying that. But it's a complete distortion of the historical reality of women's liberation to say that it didn't involve uh, women of colour very prominently and women from working class backgrounds very prominently right from the start. So, I mean, when we the point I made to... You, Tim, when we were making notes for this the other day, was look if you'd have asked anyone, any any person you know who knew anything about it at all, you know, someone who read like Time magazine every week in America in 1971, who are the leaders of the women's liberation movement? There are three people they would have mentioned. They would have mentioned Betty Friedan, they would have mentioned Gloria Steinem, and they would have mentioned Shirley Chisholm. And Shirley Chisholm was a, you know, a, a state legislator in New York, a very prominent figure in the Democratic Party. Uh, in the early 70s, and widely understood to be, you know, the most prominent actual, actual elected representative in the United States to be at that time to be associated with women's liberation, and she was, uh, you know, a woman of colour. So it's just not true. It's just not true. I say that um, that uh, women's liberation didn't, you know, involve you know women of colour and you know and also women from non-privileged backgrounds very sort of prominently. No, well, I'm just saying this. So this is what this is what this is what we this is what we see on the ground of the music we're exploring in this show. Uh, I mean, this was this is kind yeah, of exactly. how this discussion uh, kind of emerged because I mean, admittedly, we're looking at soul. We're kind of looking at you know soul music and elements, other sounds, whether they be kind of jazz or gospel, that feed into that feed in differently to soul music. So you, you could sort of say, well, most of the artists, or in fact, I think it's all of the artists we're going to look at. Um, in the in this pro in this program, we're always going to be black, but yeah, they're all they're all black, and they're all they're all pa- they're powerful, articulate figures who have an impact in the way they lead their lives, the the you know the lyrics they they sing, but primarily the way that they kind of you know they're also their kind of music comes through. Uh, it's it's you know music is is effective, it's powerful. It inspires people to action. It gives people a sense of feeling. It energizes people. We know this, of course, from not just our listening, but also our, our dancing, which, uh, you know, when we go out dancing, it's a particularly intense form of listening, uh, you know, at volume for a length of time where the, you leave, you leave the party at the end of the night and you are charged with a new sensibility, a new spirit of being. And so, you know, these are, you know, of clearly the sorts of the, these, whether it be Nina Simone or, or, or indeed Aretha Franklin, or indeed some of the artists we're going to kind of go on to talk about. These are kind of significant kind of figures within, within, you know, black feminism and uh, this kind of this new sensibility that, as you rightly say, uh, suggests that you know the idea that you know a second wave of feminism is just white women dominating the discourse is clearly un- untenable. Tune in, turn on, get, get down. down. So, Nina Simone's pretty revolution, pretty serious piece of work. I mean, it is fun as well. Actually, it's very f- it's fun the way she's really replying to the Beatles, but a track I wanted just to play, because for me, it really sums up something of that spirit of that moment, even though it is not explicitly political. And it's by an artist who, as far as I know, had no explicit political affiliation or interest in politics. Uh, Spanky Wilson's cover of Sunshine of Your Love. I partly wanted us to play this just because it's a classic tune for me when I'm DJing. People always love it. But for me, it really does... 
express something of that kind of optimistic energy of this moment that we're talking about. Like it's not angry, but it's very kind of optimistic. It's very kind of energetic. But also, I mean, my experience of playing this, of DJing this, is that people love it and people love it on its own terms. And usually like half the crowd will just love it as this really powerful sort of funky soul record. You know, it's really, um, you know, with a really kind of, you know, spirited vocal, very kind of intense build-ups. Uh, but half the crowds will usually will recognize it and they'll recognize it as a as a cover of a song called Sunshine of Your Love by Cream. And Cream are, you know, I mean, this the cover must have come out pretty shortly after the original. Uh, the original must have been that year or the, or the year before. Um, and Cream were like, the, Cream are sometimes described as the first super group. You know, it was Eric Clapton and some other very well-known kind of blues rock musicians of the time forming, you know, what was described as a super group. You know, this, these, this was the ultimate expression of rock music virtuosity and of rock music as a, as a kind of white form, even though it was so heavily dependent upon black music. And it's, you know, it is a good tune. I mean, Sunshine of Love, it's a big, powerful tune. Uh, there's a really, there's a great, I don't know how easy it is to find these days, there's a great version of Cream doing it with Hendrix, actually. So, uh, but but this is that song reworked as a kind of funky soul record. And it's a really, it, it makes a kind of fantastic, fantastic kind of dance floor record. And uh, for me, that is that is a kind of, it is a kind of sonic expression of an incipient and emerging black feminism. Uh, in a really kind of powerful way. You like it. You like this team, I absolutely don't you? love it. And uh, yeah, I don't have any much to add. I don't know a great deal about Spanky Wilson, I must admit. Um, but yeah, I think it kind of, I, it's, I, I always, it's always, I always love it when the kind of the remake of a song kind of surpasses the original. Often we're kind of a bit wedded to the idea that the kind of the original is, is, you know, is, is often the best version. I know da- David, David Mancuso was really didn't like remix, you know, said he didn't like remix culture, even though he would play quite a few remixes without knowing it. Um, yeah, he didn't know, he would only play if he didn't know it was a remix. Yeah, generally. <laughs> and then there's, a, you know, one of the kind of Arthur Russell's favourite kind of mottos, uh, which I think he, I forget which uh, poet he took this uh, the line from, but it was kind of first take, best take. It's the idea that when you do something for the first time, I mean, it's a slightly different concept, admittedly, but it's kind of freshest. Uh, and I think we can kind of say that when you do a cover of a record, how can it be as fresh as when it was a, originally done? But for me, this is, you know, I've, I much prefer it to the, the original Cream record. I mean, it's a record that we, of course, could have played in the last funk episode as well. There are quite a few records between these two episodes that kind of could have gone, you know, could have switched back and forth effectively. Um, 
And this one, I, I love the way it sort of feminizes it and it funkifies it and it gives it all this kind of soul energy. And it just completely lifts a song in this extraordinary way. But it sort of does it, it does this sort of feminization without it becoming feminine. I mean, it's confident and it's strident, it's powerful. Uh, it's a kind of what I suppose what you, you can sense. And, you know, and this, this kind of obviously, you know, may well have been inspired by the kind of Aretha's delivery on, on respect, of course, because this comes out a couple of years later, I think. But, um, you know, it's about a, a new, a new sense, a new sensibility. If we're comparing this back to kind of, you know, the girl groups of the early 60s and the feminization of kind of, you know, women in the 1950s, this is about a kind of a very confident, you know, brash, kind of knowing, um, sure-footed form of kind of, you know, uh, womanhood. So, uh, yeah, it's a great record. Music, dance, sound systems, counterculture. This is Love is the Message. We're both in awe of this, aren't we? This is this is like oh, this, this record is incredible. Shores. We were going to do. We couldn't even work out which one to do because there's liberation conversation, and there's also woman of the ghetto. And as we're doing a bit both from the same album. on the same album, um, but as we were doing the prep for the show, we weren't entirely sure which version of woman of the ghetto we were going to play, and I'm not sure we ever kind of resolved that because it's the original. No, we, did we decide? We agreed that you would have your way. Oh, okay. We agreed that you would get your way. Did I, I, I thought I just agreed that. <laughs> I didn't realise you agreed no. that I would get my way. Well, we're having. Well, it's better to have from different records. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to hear liberation conversation. Okay. The 1969 record. Spice of Life. It's the album Spice, Spice, of, Spice Life. of Life. Yeah. It's a second album, but it's the 1969. It's really kind of extraordinary. It's very, so clearly a kind of post-liberation, post-women's liberation or in women's liberation, in Black Power record. I mean, she'd been a jazz singer, really, Marlena Shaw. And I haven't really listened to the. I don't know what the first record sounds like, actually, in 67. But this one, I mean, she's, she's doing... Sort of, it's a bit jazz inflected, but it's soul and funk. And it's, the whole album is just amazing, I think. But it, the two standout tracks for us are Liberation Conversation. And woman of the ghetto. I was born and raised in the ghetto. I was born and raised in the ghetto. I'm the woman of the ghetto. Listen to me, legislator. But there's also a fantastic live version of Woman of the Ghetto from 1974 from the live Montreux album.
I mean, the lyrics, it's, it's really interesting relationships in the lyrics and the title, because the title is Liberation Conversation. So it's very explicitly associating itself with the liberation movements. It's mostly just got one line, which is blues ain't nothing but a good woman gone bad. And then this final verse that goes stormy, 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 stormy Monday, stormy Monday, stormy Monday. I mean, it's a poem. You know, it's a really kind of intense sort of poem. So it's not really about the lyric. I mean, it's a really good example, I think, of lyrics being used to convey a mood rather than a clear didactic sense. And it is a mood which is announced by its title, a mood of liberation, a move of kind of breaking out of any kind of conventional notions of, you know, morality or gender, you know, gendered morality at least. And you know, normative femininity, but it's, it is just, it's an extraordinary piece of, of music. It's just on its own terms, even if you didn't have any lyrics. Absolutely. I mean, it kind of makes me wonder also what the conversation might be. I mean, blues is all, you know, and, and a lot of African-American music is rooted in antiphony or call and response. It's begin, you know, arguably, you know, the blues is one of the first articulation of this. So that in itself is a conversation. And then the conversation is about, you know, basically, you know, there's an appropriation of the blues by, you know, by by a woman here. You know, this is, blues is nothing, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's, it's, that line contains quite a lot. Um, blues ain't nothing but a good woman gone bad. Um, so it's also about a kind of, you know, I don't know, maybe it's about, you know, introducing a more complex idea of, of you know, of womanhood. Uh, you know, the the bad is the good. And he also, I mean, it evokes evokes the memory that some of the first prominent blues singers were women yeah, to begin absolutely. with. Women who'd all, who exactly. were, were very clearly subverting like notions of what, of feminine propriety at the time. Exactly. Of course, the, be, the best book about that I know is, is by none other than Angela Davis, you know, who you mentioned earlier, the you know, prominent black commun, American communist who was in jail at, at the time. But there's just something about that, indeed, as you say, it's kind of what, you know, it's not about kind of trying to dig necessarily even too deep into this kind of one line, um, because, the, the you know, the conversation is just, conversation doesn't have to, it's about exchange, right, I guess. Uh, it's it's yeah, something yeah. which is about dynamic, and liberation is also about kind of how do, how do we feel free? And this record is just kind of, this record makes you kind of feel, and the delivery of, of these lines, the singing, uh, it's just kind of explosive. It's just completely explosive, actually. Um, so, and it's kind of scat. She's using this sort of scat technique from her jazz, from jazz. Scene. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, "Woman of the Ghetto" on this, on the recording of the Spice of Life, is is really uh, it's a really interesting recording. Uh, I know I I know the Montreux recording better, and I played that one more, and that's the one that I tend to play out. Uh, when I have played it out, all our friends, um, it's got a different kind of. It's got a pretty different kind of mood, really. It's less. It's 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 indeed. It's a lot moodier. It's a. It's kind of more epic in its own way. It's it's a lot longer. I think the the Montreux version kind of lasts for ten minutes, um, and also takes the. Um, takes the develops as far as I'm aware the lyrics of of the original the original has this kind of quite um surreal um just trying to think of the words to describe it um there's a there's a there's a really interesting there's it's a really interesting kind of um sonic presentation it's got quite an experimental and atmospheric kind of feel to it 
Um, so, which doesn't doesn't have it doesn't in the the live version has, has got this real live feel. It doesn't doesn't come across as being studio based at all. And of course, of course, it's not. Um, so the, the 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 live version is more around kind of musicians kind of jamming and building up to these kind of crescendos. And these crescendo, and it's a it's a really the it's the records in a way couldn't be more different. These two tracks couldn't be more different. I mean, Woman of the Ghetto. I mean, it's both it's, the instrumentation is both is in, extraordinary, and I think that both could work really well as kind of dance tracks. But they're not obviously danceable tracks um, in the way that uh, Liberation, Conversation, Justice got this really up tempo kind of catchiness to it in, uh, in a way. Um, the you know the the Woman of the Ghetto is complete social commentary. Uh, and it's and it's very very radical, and it does bring together these perspectives of being you know being female, of being black, and of being working class. Uh, and it's about you know trying to kind of you know indeed, as is well known from the lyrics, uh, Marlene Shaw being a woman, a woman of the ghetto, uh, and trying to sort of you know and make the decision between you know feeding one child and starving another, as as the lyrics go. As far as I'm aware, the live version develops these extra extra lyrics at the end that go much more explicitly into the history of slavery. I think there's one line that goes, puts me in mind of coming across the water in a boat, chained together, tied together. They said, no, no, they're really not man and woman, just chain them up, tie them up. That's where the movement came from. Uh, and then it kind of goes even deeper into kind of the impoverished, you know, impoverishment of black women, you know, uh, you know, who kind of can kind of pretty much from Harlem see the see the skyscrapers of of downtown and the the, the wealth that kind of you know of that part of that part of the city, um, and the kind of the politics that go with you know this kind of contrast in kind of wealth, uh, and then the kind of prostitution and sex work and exploitation that uh, lies at the heart of this relationship, you know, with the kind of the, the final line of this Montreux version being, remember me, I'm the one who had your babies. Well, I ain't going to raise your babies no more. I'm a woman of the ghetto. And it does have this kind of incredible crescendo from being, you know, from having quite quiet uh, and open beginning that where this kind of crescendo that blends funk and soul and jazz and R&B uh, and it's very, I mean, in, in this in this way, I think Mar you know, Marlena Shaw is occupying pretty much the same musical spaces as Nina Simone, um, because, it, because it's it's very outspoken. There's nothing, it's not liberal in any way whatsoever. Uh, and it expresses a kind of powerful anger that is never, I don't know, never, never loses sight of its kind of, you know, of its tonality. Uh, it's, it's, it's conviction, it's inner resourcefulness. Um, so it's kind of, it's, you know, it's fun, it's angry, but it's also calm as, as well at the same time, I suppose. It's one of my favourite records. Yeah, I think, well, I think that's completely right. And it's just um, really just kind of extraordinary that it, this record exists in a way, because it's so, um, it's so explicit in its politics. And it, but it is, it is really sort of danceable. And I play, I usually play the 69, the studio version. DJing and people absolutely love it it's such a kind of epic too and it's you know it's an appeal you know listen to me legislator just sort of tremendous and it really sort of it sort of exemplifies I think um you know it exemplifies the fact that 
there was a very clear consciousness, you know, amongst lots of people, like including, you know, these people, yeah, including musicians, of the kind of interrelatedness of issues of class, race, gender at this time. And again, this is also, so I think it, this is another thing worth saying, because this is another kind of common misconception these days, which again goes back to a sort of rewriting of history that happened in the 80s to some extent and, and subsequently. So it's very, lots of people will have heard this term intersectionality. And intersectionality is just a way of thinking about the fact that different sets of power relationships in, intersect with each other and interact with each other. So people can experience oppression as, you know, black people, as women, you know, as poor people, and also, but not, those aren't just separate categories, they sort of, they intersect with each other. And this is a term that was first uh, put forward by a, a, an American legal theorist called Kimberly Crenshaw, and Crenshaw was, in, which is a legal theorist, she was really talking about how there was a problem with some of the legal frameworks indeed had come out of the, the American Civil Rights Act, such that if you wanted to bring a claim to the Equal Employment Opportunities Commission, a claim for discrimination, you could only do it on the basis of either race or sex. You couldn't do both. And she was arguing that there should be some way of, of talking about how you, it should be possible to do both in some way. So it's a very specific context. And then in recent years, it's really been sort of the concept of intersectionality has been sort of elevated as if, you know, intersectionality is, is, the, is the way to think about black feminism and is the only way to think about it. And as if nobody had thought about the inter interaction between class, race, gender previously, which is clearly not true. I mean, it's not true because our own kind of intellectual tradition, like British cultural studies, was exploring those things in the 70s, from the 70s onwards. But even that, I mean, cultural studies scholars were only doing that because people involved in the actual movements were doing it. You know, people involved in, in movement politics, people involved in liberation politics and artists were doing it very explicitly. And Woman of the Ghetto is a very explicitly, we keep using this word explicit, but it's appropriate. It's very explicitly, you know, it's, a, it's an evocation of those things. And it's really important for understanding this moment historically, you know, understanding the way in which those different movements were interacting with each other. So as we mentioned on the last show, I mean, the moment when the American authorities really became most scared of the Black Panthers was when the politics of the Panthers itself became influenced by the politics of women's liberation and became less kind of aggressively militaristic and became more about, you know, feeding children, feeding the children in the ghetto, like actually doing that. So... And that's happening around. That is happening exactly this moment, around 69, sort of 69 to 71. So really sort of extraordinarily and inspiring. I've got to say, I mean, yeah, you could make a really, you could make an argument, and it does occur to me, and I do sometimes feel kind of uncomfortable when thinking about this, that, you know, there's a problem with, like, you or me, like, DJing this record to a, a crowd that will not be exclusively, but mostly white, mostly middle class, uh, not not mostly male necessarily. I do think it's important actually not to just be a, a tourist in other people's misery. You know, it's not, and it's important to try and you know be in engaged in politics, like outside the the party, outside the dance floor, like in your real life. Like if I would say, like if you want to, if you want to be a white person who's really into black music, then you need to be at, at some points in your life, like doing some active anti racism. Um, I think, um, but at the same time. 
uh, it's I think I think it's really important, even if it's just a bunch of middle class white professors with a posh sound system. It's important to kind of preserve this stuff, and it's important to maintain it, and it's important to recognise its inspirational power. And I think it's a really important, it's a really powerful resource for us to take inspiration from in kind of ongoing struggles, like in into the 21st century. I think this, and for me, this record, it really does sort of sum up something, you know, for me, it's a record from which I take some inspiration, you know, in my commitment to radical struggle of various kinds. There's one big party going on all the time. Sometimes we get to tune into it. The rest of the time, there's love is the message. So let's just we've got we've got a few more records we we want to get through. So we're going to try and talk a bit less about them, uh, and, and in part they're also less epic records. Uh, and we've also set up some of the kind of some of the things that we kind of wanted to kind of dis, uh, discuss in, in this episode already. So so we can we can get through a couple of, a few records a little more quickly. Uh, and one of the ones that we wanted to play, or the one we wanted to play next, is uh, Little Sister, You're the One. So this is a record that um, I don't know uh, a great deal about. Uh, Little Sister is kind of related to Sly Stone uh, in terms of the production, so it kind of links in terms of its feeling to a lot of what we were talking about in, in um, last week's uh, funk episode. Obviously, one of the contrasts with with some of what we've been playing so far, although not necessarily um, the sunshine of your love, uh, but a number of the other records, is we're entering into something which is just kind of very upbeat, um, very danceable. Uh, it's a 1970 release, so this is the year when, um, when as, as far as I was concerned, when writing "Love Saves the Day," this is the kind of you know year zero of DJ-led party culture. DJs had obviously existed previously discotheques had existed previously but something changed in 1970 um, for a whole bunch of reasons that we've a good number of which we've discussed in earlier episodes and this is one of the records that was just kind of drove the dance floors um, of this particular period um, in, a, in a way it was typical because it was DJs searching around for records that would make the, the dance floors work there was no there weren't really record companies that uh, knew about this culture existing that were trying to feed this culture that didn't really happen for at least three years maybe, maybe four really um, and it was a big track for Francis Grasso at the Sanctuary uh, it was a big record for David Mancuso at the Loft when Nicky Ciano's gallery took off in 1973. It was a big record for Nicky Ciano. And it's just, you know, a funky, thrusting, confident record that, again, sort of captures this uh, new sensibility that we're talking about. And I think kind of obviously worked because, you know, this was the sensibility that was now embraced by these dance floors. Everything else we talked about, I think, so far was released before 1970. But this kind of in this kind of coming together of these energies uh, that kind of, you know, wanted to kind of express, uh, find expression for marginalised and dispossessed 
voices and forms of agency, whether they be female, whether they be black, whether they be working class, they they just exploded. They cohered. They sp- had this. They spoke to what was what was what was being felt on these dance floors, where this rainbow coalition of dancers uh, really did come together. Uh, and so this is just a track that kind of you know fits into the kind of this idea of a feminist soul and also captures the way in which this idea became explosive uh, on the dance floors and in in some respects became one of the early kind of records that set up this very very important relationship between you know black female vocalists and the dance floor you know if we if we're going to sort of say that there was kind of one musical figure that became sort of that seemed to somehow capture what was going on on on, on these dance floors and went on to capture the the heart or the soul if you like of of disco uh, it would be the kind of you know the black female vocalist the black female diva uh, who would be soulful and would be funky and would be danceable and would be confident and able to kind of, you know, capture an em- emotional feeling. So what about, so we're going to jump ahead three years. And this is the three degrees. You're a dirty old man. I can talk about it, but you—it was your idea. It was a really great idea to talk about. So, what is um, what is to say about this? Yeah, I mean, it's um, the Three Degrees were um, a, a group from Philadelphia International, the label uh, form set up by uh, Gamble and Huff, um, that became one of the kind of you know iconic labels of you know proto disco or uh, the, and, and then disco music. Uh, this is, uh, you're a, you're a dirty old man is released in 1973. So this is on the cusp of kind of disco kind of becoming something that's recognizable, uh, something that we could identify as a genre. And we're going to go on to talk about that a bit more in, in the next episode. Uh, and I think it's kind of, it's, it's the, uh, I think it's a record that appeared on the first album of the three degrees um and this was the kind of i think this was the the biggest hit on on the album um the uh, the three degrees we should also mention uh go on to um be the backing vocalist for the i think it's the well mfsb uh, which is the kind of in-house band of philadelphia international that releases of course we have to say love is the message uh, from which or one of the, one of the roots or the, one of the primary roots that we've taken the name of this podcast from and uh tsop the sound of philadelphia so i think there's three degrees that will uh, provide backing vocals on on uh, those some of those records uh it's three black women the group has has gone on for decades uh, maybe i don't even know if it still might be going actually uh, i think there might have been something like 30 different three degrees members of the three degrees but there's always been three of them at any one time and it captures i think the something about um the philadelphia international uh, approach to recording music uh, which was to embrace what's uh, kind of something which is really quite upbeat uh, 
uh, in its soulfulness. I mean, Philadelphia International really does form this bridge between soul music and disco, uh, embodies that, that, that transition. But unlike quite a lot of disco that would go on to follow, where the, the emphasis sort of is often on encouraging people to dance and move their bodies, um, and, and other, you know, other, other lyrics, of course. Uh, the thing with Philadelphia International, as is well known, is that it was always about trying to putting a message in the music and then using up, upbeat soul music to find a way to communicate that message to a mass audience. That's what this record's doing. It's kind of almost kind of uncanny, really, that such a kind of, you know, sunny sounding, uh, kind of, you know, almost optimistic record should be kind of, you know, effectively engaging in issues around sexual harassment um, and, and, and promiscuity. Yeah, well, I just agree. I think that's really interesting. And it's obviously that's a real issue for the women's movement. And this is, I mean, interesting, this is around the time when the women's movement really starts to take issues like sexual harassment, domestic violence, etc., as, as kind of central political issues that they're going to try to address and they're going to try to challenge. I mean, uh, you know, in those sort of academic histories of waves of feminism, you know, that's one of the differences. Although, I mean, it's true that it is true that things like sexual education, contraception, domestic violence were issues, you know, for feminists going back to the 19th century. They're often seen as kind of distinctive features that start to emerge at this moment because the women's movement isn't just asking for formal legal equality. It's it's arguing, it's asking for a whole different way of life in which the different, the multiple ways in which men have oppressed, policed and used women are, you know, are rejected, are limited, are pushed back against. And it's a real shift from that 60s discourse, which is basically women just saying to men, please be nice to me. To men, to, to to I mean, this is a calling out song to use contemporary language. This is this is saying, you know, you're 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 a dirty old man. You know, you're 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 behaving in a way which is just no longer going to be regarded as acceptable in this new moment. And in that sense, it is really extraordinary. I mean, it's just, it's an extraordinary so you know artifact of social history of the time. And it and it is also you know it's a cracking record. Similar could be said about the next record, La Belle, you know, Patti LaBelle's first group, you know, one of the the iconic figures of disco. I mean, Patti LaBelle, arguably, arguably the sort of the real kind of disco fans' favourite diva. And LaBelle was her first group. And what about this record specifically? 1974, What Can I Do For You? Well, the, the big hit from that album was Lady Marmalade, and that went on to become an international hit, and it's the better-known record. But it was, a, but this was also a big record uh, on the New York City dance floors. Um, we're into nineteen seventy-four. We're into kind of you know something that's much more obviously disco territory. But this is not straightforward disco. This is glam rock, somewhat and probably a, a group of black female vocalists um, embracing a really kind of you know, not only a sort of uh, kind of a resolute kind of funkiness, but also kind of, you know, elements of rock that have, you know, had historically, of course, been the kind of, you know, terrain for kind of 
white male musicians. Um, so, you know, there's just, uh, I think there's, again, this is one of those records that kind of um, has a real kind of, int- uh, you know, uh, explosive energy that, uh, you know, clearly kind of works on a, on a dance floor. The, 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 en- the depth of kind of feeling that comes through is, is very powerful. There was something about Labelle that was also kind of, there was an you know, expressiveness that was kind of, um, really kind of compelling there was kind of they moved from kind of you know outlandish space age kind of costumes that were kind of you know reminiscent of glam rock um but then kind of just kind of ended up kind of you know getting rid of this and just kind of emphasizing afros and jeans so there was something kind of very earthy about their their kind of their presence but you know what can i do for you is just a song i also kind of you know really love uh, they went on to become the first rock group to perform at the Metropolitan, Metropolitan Opera House, um, which is maybe a bit improbable. Um, and uh, they also, in the because of this, at this release, uh, went on to become the first African American um, group to be to make the cover of Rolling Stone which sounds kind of, again, somewhat improbable, but that happened in the, the spring of 1975. So it's a confident, emancipatory sound. Uh, and no, no, you know, Patti LaBelle's an incredible kind of, you know, vocalist. Um, music is my, is my way of life. It's just kind of, you know, huge loft anthems, one of my favourites, uh, for sure. And uh, Nona Hendrix uh, went on to have a, you know, when the group broke up, went on to have this really interesting career and believe she still she still is go is still going um a black queer female vocalist uh who i managed to reference a few times in the last book life and death on the new york dance floor um she had this couple of records came out in the early 80s one was keep it confidential uh and which i think was maybe 1981 and then she released this track which went on to become a really big hit at the paradise garage called transformation and so this is, again, although this is kind of going forward a few years and who knows, we might come back to this in a, in a later program. But for, a, you know, a, you know, for Hendrix, known Hendrix to be singing, a, a, you know, from a, a black female queer perspective, singing a song that brings in electronics and, and, and meditates on the theme of transformation, it shows how progressive, um, not only musically, but also we could say sort of, you know, politically or socially, uh, this this music was. Yeah, I agree. But I'm sure we'll talk about that when we get to the 80s more. I mean, back to 74, uh, Betty Davis, they say I'm different. They say I'm different because I'm a piece of sugar cake. Sweet to the core, that's right, I got a real bone. My great-grandma didn't like a foxtrot. Now, instead she spit, it's nothing boogie-tay, Betty Davis, extraordinary figure. I'm overusing the word extraordinary today. Sorry. Again, like a lot of these people, she's from Carolina originally. Um, but uh, but really comes out of this New York downtown scene, I think, hanging around places, hanging around um, the village and places like this in the 60s. And like Marlena Shaw, unlike some of the other people we've mentioned, she's she's generally singing her own songs. Um and she's she's credited as the, the the sole or the principal author of this and lots of others. 
really, I mean, and it's a, it's a kind of, it's a really amazing song. It's a, it's a, the song that which kind of um, situates herself in this lineage, a kind of blues music, really, blues and rhythm and blues. So name checks all these people, Albert King, Howlin' Wolf, Bessie Smith, T-Bone Walker. It's called They Say I'm Different. It, it was actually used as the title for an edited collection, a kind of Anglo-German edited collection of essays about music and gender that I had a, I had a chapter in a few years ago. If you can find a copy of that. I had an essay called More Than a Woman, Becoming Woman on the Disco Floor. So uh, <clears throat> our interests haven't moved on much from then. <laughs> so <laughs> we're still talking about this. So... Um, and uh, I and it's just musically, it's it's quite complicated. You know, it's quite a lot of just a jazz element. So I'd say it's really it, I, you would call it either soul jazz or or funk. And it's just very explicit. It's just very clear by 1974 that a, a self conscious sort of black feminism is expressing itself through music and through these kinds of music. And as we said in the last episode it's drawing quite it's drawing directly on that propulsive energy of funk and also on that something we didn't talk about really in the funk episode uh, and we mentioned when we were preparing this show is this, the secularity of funk i mean this is one of the things that's going on i think with for example aretha franklin going off to become a gospel singer or going back to being a gospel singer and this new cohort really sort of to some extent i think kind of led or you know inspired or by nina simone there's new coat of singers that might include people we're not gonna have time to play like phoebe snow as well there's really sort of jazz influenced people and people more directly just coming from funk and one of the things that's characteristic about them is they're not so much influenced by gospel. You can maybe hear some gospel in the sort of piano and vocal of people like Nina Simone, but they're really less so. And one of the points made by the writer and critic John Scannell about James Brown and the emergence of funk is that funk is about a sort of secularization of soul. Funk moves away from the kind of spiritual and utopian aspects of soul and it moves into and it kind of what you're left with is a sort of direct descendant of rhythm and blues is this much more secular kind of sound and that is i think it's interesting because i think what characterizes a lot of this uh what we're calling feminist soul is it's drawing on these explicitly secular traditions of blues and jazz and then funk uh, more than it's drawing on gospel and and what a lot of what gets recognized generically as disco uh, will kind of retain or even re-emphasize some gospel mm. elements like later mm. on but this stuff that we're talking about today well I, as i keep saying we're using this term feminist soul i think a, a lot of it it's exploring these very secular materials and the betty and this betty davis song is a really good example of that and they're both sonically and lyrically she really situates herself in this secular tradition of the blues but then final final track for today would be one which is really moving back into that sort of mainstream disco territory. And it is it does have slightly more of a kind of gospel choral aspect to it, even though it also has all these other qualities that we've been attributing to feminist soul. This is a song which I think a lot of people will know just as a sort of standard kind of disco favourite, you know. Uh, but it's, you know, if you, especially if you get into the lyrics, as we seem to be doing a lot today, it's pretty explicit in its feminist ethos. It's the point, sisters. Yes, we can, can. I know that we can. I know, Don. 
I think this is one of these records that um, brings a lot together. I mean, I think it's got um, it's it's clearly soulful. Um, I think it's clearly funky. I think it's also clearly uh, moving into elements of disco that will kind of you know take the gospel that is already informing soul and will become more explicit. Um, so I think it's a, it's a 1974 record that captures a, a lot of these sonic elements that are already in, in circulation uh again it's something which is um becomes a, a big hit on on the dance floor uh it was a big record for nicky siano nicky siano um as we've discussed in an earlier program sort of got the gallery going during 1973 in particular when david mancuso went to london london and europe for that for the for the summer uh, and that was when the kind of gallery took off. And, you know, a short while later, Pointer Sisters, Yes We Can Can, became a big hit for Nikki. One of the things that distinguished uh, Nikki's dance floor from David's, and David always said that the gallery was the party that came closest to the loft. Um, but David and Nikki were quite different sort of characters. And although there was a lot, of, there were a lot of records that they played that they both liked, uh, there were also some differences. And this record is, is one of them. I don't think David particularly played this record. Nikki was more into songs that featured women expressing themselves. This was, he was an extrovert character and he kind of heavily identified with, you know, a lot of these fe female um, records that featured female vocalists and were quite expressive. Um, so this is very much a kind of gallery record. Um, the Pointer Scissors, we should kind of mention, uh, as it was, a, was a group that kind of hails from Oakland, uh, California. Uh, they have kind of quite a quite a prolific recording career. This record is really just captures a lot of what you know, a lot of not just the sonic, but also I think the kind of um, lyrical um, or thematic energies that um, points, uh, arguments, positions that we've also been touching on uh, in in this show as well. Uh, the lyrics are are really fantastic. Uh, and they're very it's very inclusive and this is again one of the reasons why um, I think it works so was such a popular record um, it's in this in this particular instance it these these it's articulated by the vocalists uh, it articulates a, a feminist point of view but it's also inclusive uh, it's calling on a form of a coalition to take place. The lyrics run uh, now. I mean, I'll read a start from the beginning and I won't, I won't try and read them all, but now's the time for all good men to get together with one another. We've got to iron out our problems and iron out our quarrels and try to live as brothers and try to find peace within without stepping on one another and do respect the women of the world. Remember, you all had mothers. Uh, we've got to make this land a better land than the world in which we live. We've got to help each other. Some can't, we can't start resist, but getting a bit of the kind of meter running. And we've got to, to help each man be a better man with the kindness that we give. So it carries on. It's a very, it's very positive. It's very open. It's about forming alliances and it's about the possibility of progressive change and doing this together. So clearly there's something going on in which kind of the energy of dancing kind of also seems to suit this kind of message. Uh, it's uplifting. Uh, it's the point where you kind of, you know, you, you re basically you release, 
you let something go and you're ready to embrace something else. Um, so for me, it's just a record that is really, really fantastic record. It still sounds really hot. Uh, it's an invitation to struggle. It's about universal emancipation. And uh, it just, you know, it captures all of these, the, 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 uh, all of this kind of much of the kind of sonic and social uh, politics of, 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 the, of the dance floor. Um, but also developments are going on in wider, you know, uh, US society. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's a great, you know, it's an energy to solidarity. It's an invocation to solidarity mm. and and collective and radical optimism. And I think, you know, at, at its best, that is what disco was cap- became capable of expressing, like almost better than any other form. But exactly what that means, exactly what the boundaries are between disco, funk, soul, feminist soul, heavy funk, if, if there is any point even trying to ever answer questions like that, uh, it's something we're going to talk about next time, isn't it? Yes, it is. Fantastic. I think, I think for now, we've gone on a while, but I think we've really made our case pretty strongly that there's a very, of one of the most important things happening at this time is this, is this uh, emergence and development of feminist soul. Mm-hmm.